As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for listening to the programme that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we dive into this week's show, I want to let you know about a very exciting competition. To celebrate 10 years since the release of Professor Alistair McGrath's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis A Life, we are giving away 15 copies, one for each chapter of the book, courtesy of the publisher Hodder Faith. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. This link will be included in the show notes, but here it is one more time. premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book. But now for today's show. This is the 12th episode in our series on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. And our focus here is on the imaginative world of Narnia. Alistair, we're carrying on our conversation about Narnia because it was such a significant body of work for C.S. Lewis. But how did he want people to approach the Chronicles of Narnia or, I mean, any of his fiction for that matter? Well, I think that the key thing is to appreciate it, it is a, an imaginative work. That is to say that um, what draws you into it is the fact you can step into almost like a picture um, and you enter this new world and experience, and as you experience it, you begin to think. And why it's quite important is that Lewis is really projecting the imagination as the gateway to serious thinking. That's a very leading theme in Lewis's thought in general, but Narnia actually is a worked example of doing this. You're drawn into these books by their imaginative power, and as you step into them and think, you begin to find yourself almost, if you like, um, using your imagination to enter a place where you are free to think through many of the big questions of life. So it's a remarkable achievement, I think. He spoke as well, didn't he, about authors being sort of spectacles within which to see the world. Is that sort of, does, does that, is that an important part of how we approach Narnia Chronicles as well, do you think? I think you should bear that framework in mind. Lewis was very, very clear that... Uh, a good writer is not a, a spectacle in themselves, say, hey, look at me, but rather, if you like, it's a set of spectacles through which you see the world in a new and more exciting way. I think that is how Lewis would like us to approach Narnia, is to say, in effect, look, um, I think I've seen something. I'm telling you a story which expresses a step into the narrative and see if you like what you see. But that, you see, is very characteristic of Lewis's apologetic method in general. He invites us to step into the Christian faith and explore it from within. How well does it make sense of things? What does it feel like to be part of this? And if you like, um, the Chronicles of Narnia is enabling us to 
feel what it's like to believe in God. And that anger is something Lewis does remarkably well. Not many others can do it quite as well, I think. But certainly for Lewis, um, this is all about what he wanted to do as a writer. He's saying, I have found something. I'm going to tell stories which tell you what I've found in case that helps you find it as well. Now, Aslan's probably one of the most famous literary characters of all time. But do we know where the inspiration for Aslan came from? Well, let me put it like this. Uh, we have lots of Lewis scholars telling us where they think Lewis got his inspiration from. It may have been the door knocker of um, the the church back in Belfast, uh, which Lewis knew as a, as a boy. It might be. I'm not entirely persuaded. Uh, it, it might, you know, there's so many things it could be. It could be biblical, the Lion of Judah. There's so many possibilities. It might just be popular stories Lewis had read, whereby the Lion is the King of the Jungle, and so on. We don't really know, but it was an entirely appropriate choice, if I may say so, because in effect, uh, Aslan conveys strength and majesty and wisdom. Um, and that, those, I think, are very key attributes for trying to understand why Lewis is presenting him, in effect, as a Christ figure. And what does Lewis anticipate readers' response being to Aslan? I think the gradual disclosure of who Aslan is is one of the most remarkable features of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's this sense of expectation, there's this figure. Very important that when he comes back, oh, it's going to be so wonderful. It's like... Um, it's like King uh, Richard the Lionheart coming back from the, the crusade sort of thing, you know, very, very significant. And I think what Lewis is trying to do is convey a figure who is majestic, who is awesome, who is wise and gentle, who is not a tame lion, that's a very key point, but actually is someone who is um, mysterious and masterful at the same time. And Lewis is really saying, look, if you look at each of the four Pevensey children, they experience Aslan in slightly different ways. Some are overawed by him. Some of them are absolutely delighted by him. But Lewis is trying to make the point that Christ encounters people in different ways and has different effects upon them. So it is, I think, a very well-developed theme right throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. And Aslan's death is obviously a really key event in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Do you think Lewis was trying to portray a particular atonement theory in his narrative? That is something that scholars find a little bit puzzling. I think there's no doubt Lewis is trying to say that the death of Aslan, like the death of Christ, benefits people. The difficulty is really that in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, only one person benefits from Aslan's death. Um, and I think that that for some scholars is a little bit... Um, a little bit of, a, of an anticlimax, and you know, more could have been said. But I think that Lewis's purpose in the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe is not to give us a kind of basic lecture in theology. It's much more about trying to convey the majestic, imaginative power of Aslan, and that he does something that is immensely noble, which changes situations and changes people's hearts. And in many ways, I think. For me, the most significant theme about the death of Aslan is actually the, the lament it induces on the part, for example, of Lucy. You know, it is is portrayed very, very well. I think in many ways what Lewis is trying to do is, is to get us to imagine the impact that Aslan is having on people. 
Um, and that, in effect, makes us want to know more about why he's so significant. And it's at the imaginative, the emotional, and, of course, the rational level. And each of us will find that to play upon us in different ways. Now, Lewis would probably not call himself a theologian, but there are clearly some key theological things unpacked in in all of his writing, but particularly here in the Narnia Chronicles, aren't there? Well, Lewis was not a professional theologian, although actually the University of St. Andrews gave him a a, a doctorate of divinity um, because they felt he was developing a new approach to theology, which was likely to be very influential and very good. But what Lewis is doing really is saying, well, I'm I'm a kind of theologian. Um, What I'm doing is I'm working out my theological ideas at the imaginative, at the narrative level. So I think we can say Lewis has been deeply grounded in a classical Christian theology and is trying to find new ways, new imaginative ways of actually helping people to connect up with these basic theological themes. And I suppose on top of the theological themes, there are also some key classical ideas, philosophies and literature that Lewis seems to incorporate within the Narnia Chronicles. Um, So what are some of these things and and why was it important for him to put some of these into his narratives, do you think? Well, Lewis is developing a a lot of philosophical ideas. And one of the fun things, if you're a scholar to do, is to kind of work out who he is engaging with, because very often he doesn't actually mention them, but you can work out who they are. The one philosopher that actually Lewis mentions specifically in the Chronicles of Narnia is Plato. Um, And that is, I think, a leading theme that, in effect, Lewis's kind way working on the assumption that Plato articulates some ideas that make an awful lot of intuitive sense to people and that he can actually explore and lay out for his readership in the Chronicles of Narnia. For example, the idea, we are trapped in an inadequate world, there's a much bigger and better world beyond the narrow confines of our own experience. That's a very important theme. Also, the idea that in some way um, our, our perceptions of this world are indicative of a bigger world beyond our grasp. But there are other writers that Lewis is engaging with, and you can, in effect, see, for example, the critique of naturalism um, in his writings. You can also see um, Lewis kind of engaging with some um, controversies of the um, 1920s, really, about the limits of reason. But certainly, if I can put it like this, you can read the Chronicles of Narnia, and you do not feel you are being taught... um, philosophy 101, as if, as if, in fact, it's a philosophy lesson. It's much more about an embodied philosophy by which you encounter people who represent these and they help you to think things through. So it's actually really very well done, I have to say. And there's no doubt that these um, these books are still relevant today. People are still reading them. They've still got a huge amount of popular appeal. But what are some of the anachronisms that we might need to watch out for within the Narnia Chronicles, would you say? Well, Lewis clearly was writing these books in the late 40s and early 1950s and in a kind of middle-class British cultural environment. And immediately, you can see there are three problems here. Number one, what if you're not British? Number two, what if you're not located in the 1940s and 1950s? And number three, what if you don't share the same social grouping and social assumptions that Lewis himself has? And these are all problems. For example, Uh, Although Lewis does have, um, Lucy is a very significant figure, I would say the most significant figure, apart from Aslan, in the Chronicles of Narnia, most of the agents are men. And of course, that is very much what was assumed in 1940s Britain. 
So what you have to do is to, in effect, say, we have to forgive Lewis for being located at a particular point in history. He had no control over that. Let's make the most of that and try and enter into his world and, and, and see what he's trying to say us. But exactly the same thing would be true of somebody now who is writing a novel. You might well be embedded in a very different cultural location, though someone tries to read you 50 years down the line. They're going to hit the same problems reading you as you might have in reading Lewis now. I suppose that's all very important to, to sort of hold in tension. Um, but is there anything that's perhaps more problematic than him just writing from a particular um, moment in time? So, you know, you mentioned there the, the role of women, but also perhaps the role of race and things like that. Well, again, the, there are two other problems we could mention. One is that um, Lewis perhaps at some points and displays a slightly, how shall I put this, a slightly condescending approach to certain um certain other racial groups. And I think that people have picked up on this and are a little bit alarmed by that. The other thing, of course, is that Lewis's um, children speak a kind of um, schoolboy language, which, uh, which is familiar to those who read schoolboy literature of that period. But nowadays we look at this and think, hey, what is this? What does it mean? And I think at some point in the future, somebody may need to have a little glossary at the end of some of these books in fact, explain what some of these words actually mean. Because to many readers now, they are quite difficult to understand. I mean, do you think these books would benefit from a sort of rewrite? Or would that be sort of sacrilegious to try and touch C.S. Lewis, do you think? I think that with any book, you have to make a difficult decision. One is that you say, I have to step into this and try and learn its language, understand what the reader is saying. The other is someone else rewrites it and makes it absolutely clear. I'll just say the process of rewriting will inevitably distort and rob it of its magic. So for me, and this is to be my view, others may not agree with me, that being forced to take trouble to read slowly and make sense of what I'm reading, if necessary, looking up, what does this word mean? <laughs> that sort of thing actually increases the impact of the book upon you because you know it's worth taking the trouble over it. And so for me, I'm afraid I would just like them to stay as they are, but it might be the little glossary at the end might be helpful at points. So if someone was wanting to read these books with their children, um, where would be a good place to start? You would suggest Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, would you? I would, but what I will say is that's my personal choice and I have had conversations with people which makes them feel actually The Magician's Nephew is a very good place to start because, if you like, it's slightly magical. It kind of way it's much easier to draw people into it. Um, and you don't need, if, if you're reading this to a child, for the child to know about Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You can just, in effect, let them make connections themselves as they go on to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But um, I think it's very, very clear that these books um, are able to draw people in. And one of the things that, again, some of my friends say is it's very helpful just to kind of explain in advance something of what we're going to find as we read these books. So they're prepped, if you like. They have a, a sort of um, pre-awareness of what to look out for. And I think that that can be very helpful. And do you think there's kind of a minimum age or would you get started as soon as you could? Well, listen, I, I read these when I was in my 20s for the first time. 
Um, I, I really don't know. I think that um, these are books that are meant to be read by children. That's very, very clear. Uh, the act of grace is that they, they can be read with great, uh, great benefit by people who are much older than that. Alistair, thank you so much. That's all we've got time for today. But we will carry on our discussion on your wonderful book, looking at some of the key themes in Lewis's work next time. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson, and Professor Alistair McGrath. And don't forget, we're giving you the opportunity to get a free copy of Alistair's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. That's premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book. Thank you for listening and see you next time where we'll be hearing more from Alistair on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis.